A film that centers on a transgender person or storyline enters the culture like any other movie. The difference lies in the discourse around it. So writes Caden Mark Gardner in a recent essay in the Criterion Collection's online publication, The Current. Caden continues, Trans people in movies are written and talked about as if they were abstract concepts, anomalies. For years, it's been clear that very little attention is being paid by filmmakers, critics, or marketers to the ways in which a trans audience might see and react to these attempts at putting their lives in front of the camera. And the cisgender majority continues to control the conversation. For this episode of the Film Comment Podcast, we brought together two critics, Caden and Willa McClay, and two filmmakers, Isabel Sandoval and Jessica Dunn-Rovinelli, who are reframing this conversation. We asked the panel to respond to a number of excellent questions submitted by the film comment community, such as, how does one define trans cinema? Are visibility and representation important, or should questions of labor be foregrounded? And which classic movies do our panelists consider to be covertly trans? And many more. The rich and wide-ranging conversation touched upon a variety of movies, including Isabel's Lingua Franca, Jessica's So Pretty, Frank Simon's The Queen, Rosa von Pronheim's I'm My Own Woman, and more. You can find links to these movies and to our panelists' work on filmcommon.com. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We're so excited to have this particular group of guests with us today. Uh, this was kind of our dream bill for this podcast, and I'm just glad all of these people accepted our invitation. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and tell us about all the great things that they do. Uh, let's start with Caden. I'm Caden Mark Gardner. I'm a freelance film critic from upstate New York. I've written for Reverse Shot, Criterion, Film Comment, uh, Hyperallergic, and other places. And Isabel? Hi, my name is Isabel Sandoval. I'm a Philippine-born filmmaker, uh, trans, currently based in the U.S. I've written and directed three feature films, the latest being Lingo Franca, which is my first feature that I did after my gender transition. My films have uh, played at Locarno, Venice, and my first two features, Senorita and Apparition, are currently streaming on the Criterion channel. And Lingo Franca is on Netflix as well. Oh, and uh, Isabel, you should shout out your recent award. Oh, yes. Um, I'm very honored to receive the Gallica Trailblazer Award. It's uh, Gallica is the Society of LGBTQ uh, plus entertainment journalists, critics. Um, so thank you. I'm very honored. Caden is raising his hand. This, remember, people can't see you when they hear this. So. I was giving a nod to Isabel because uh, Willa and I are part of that film critic group. Yay. Uh, Willow, do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, like Caden, I'm a freelance film critic. Uh, I've written for outlets such as Vulture, um, Little White Lies, the Roger Ebert website, and I am co-author of the upcoming book with Caden, entitled Corpses, Fools, and Monsters, an Examination of Transgender Cinema. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I feel like we're getting some kind of advance preview of your book through this discussion. Like, yeah, uh, you know, get to hear some of your maybe thoughts uh, about what's what we can expect uh, from the book. So really excited. And finally, we have Jessica. Hi, I'm Jessica Don Robinelli. I am a filmmaker, director, editor, colorist and critic. I live in New York. I've made two feature films, uh, one documentary and one narrative, uh, So Pretty and Empathy. And I've made two shorts uh, and I've played at Berlinale in Lisboa. BAM Cinema Fest, or the real, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And BAM published some nice places. Um, so, yeah. And I, I know we had So Pretty on our list of best undistributed films. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Last year. Magazine. It has since been distributed. So that's... Yes. <laughs> so that, the list worked out great for us. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to know. So as you guys know, we collected audience questions for this particular roundtable. We just wanted to know, you know, what uh, the community wanted to hear you guys talk about. And we got a lot of really interesting questions. I have to say, I'm going to just tip my hat to the film comment community because it's always nerve wracking when you solicit uh, questions from the public. And all the questions were really interesting and we had a hard time picking uh, you know, a set for this discussion. But before we go into those, I wanted to open with a general question just to kind of, you know, set the stage for the specifics. And I wanted to ask each of you how you define or think of trans cinema. You know, what is trans cinema? What does it mean to you? Um, Jessica, maybe we'll start with you this time. Mm, I don't think trans cinema exists yet. Um... I would say it's perhaps in the process of unfolding. And, you know, I think some of the people on this panel will know that I'm wary as to whether or not there should be a trans cinema. Um, I'm certainly very interested in the cinema that is being built by transgender directors, of which finally there are uh, some of us. <laughs> uh, you know, I was realizing the other day that you could watch the entire canon of uh, narrative feature films directed by transgender individuals in like less than two weeks, you know. So I would say that any any field that exists is is one that is unfolding. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to term it as, uh, I wouldn't want to include uh, films uh, that were made by others about us. Um, so for me, if there is a trans cinema, it's a cinema that is made from trans specificities that moves towards what cinema can be as an art form when we when we start from those specificities. So I think I'm very interested in what this new and growing body of filmmakers has to say and how they can shape the future of cinema. Um, and I would hope that uh, the industry and the, the the critical world at large allows us to be more than to be more than trans cinema, um, because I see in the artists that exist now such beautiful um, and powerful artistic visions that, while tied to where they come from, are 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 much are much more than that. Willow, do you want to follow up on that? Sure. Um... Every time I'm asked about transgender cinema and if it exists or not, um, I think about uh, what Chantelle Ackerman said in the 1970s when she didn't want her when, when she didn't want some of her films playing in festivals that were um, simply about the type of person that she is. So, in, to an extent, I agree with Jessica that uh, if trans cinema does exist, then I would want it to be more than it's than that label would imply. 
but I'm skeptical as to the idea of it existing at the moment. I think that the tastes of trans people is so hyper specific that the idea of a trans canon is still formulating as well as transgender cinema itself. Uh, we are finally getting to a place where transgender directors are starting to become more visible. Um, in the past, when we thought about transgender movies, we were looking at things made by cis people that were either grossly off the mark or in some ways incidentally trans, which I know we're going to get to later because I know that's a big part of what Caden and I write about. But the question of whether or not transgender cinema exists is an elusive one that I don't think has a concrete answer right now. I think it depends entirely upon who you ask because some trans people will say, oh, well, my tastes um, indicate a transgender cinema existing, but I'm, I don't think that's enough. Um, Isabel, what are your thoughts on this question? I think for me, you know, uh, for practical and logistical purposes, at the minimum, um, trans cinema for me is something that has to be made um, by trans or trans identifying filmmakers and directors. Again, that's the minimum. And then, you know, I would ask if the ostensible subject matter of a particular film or a work by this director is about the trans experience, um, depending on how that director interprets, you know, the subject matter or the content of the work. Um, I've also written, recently for an article in Eflux that given that what we know as a as trans femme aesthetic specifically in cinema is I think nascent um, or quite recent because we as far as I know and this is you know from my point of view it's only quite recently that there's been an emergence um, of trans directors becoming more visible you know in the film scene that are making um, films about trans experience. Um, I guess, you know, tangentially we can, I can say that lingua franca fits into that very hazy definition um, because I am a transgender filmmaker making a film about a character who is trans um, and her situation and circumstances within a specific sociopolitical context and setting that touches on her transness, so to speak. Yeah. So that's my <laughs> very uh, rudimentary definition of trans cinema. Kaden, you wanna jump in? Yeah, so there's a part of me that almost wants to amend the title of our own forthcoming book by saying an examination, not so much of transgender cinema, but of trans film images, because I feel like the sort of metamorphosis of how images of a kind of sort of gender variance has evolved over time and has kind of gradually, even if it does feel almost stubbornly slow of moving more into what Jesse is talking about, of sort of having us as the artists and subjects. So I think of trans film images as a part of cinema of sort of seeing the gradual stripping down of people sort of conceptualizing 
lives that they have not lived or experienced. And that has gradually sort of moved forward into experiences lived, but slowly has had the authors of that text be more in control. And uh, we obviously have two panelists on here who I think are done a great service in sort of bringing that more into a more modern contemporary vision. Yeah, there's a lot of nods and uh, and kind of... Uh, Enthusiastic smiles. Right, exactly. <laughs> there was a lot more agreement, actually, I think, between the four of us than I was expecting. Wow. How about that? Well, we got to stir the pot a little bit now. You can't, you can't keep agreeing. <laughs> I don't know. We have a code. Clint, do you want to... You want to bring up the first audience question we have? Sure. We had a question. From... Not audience, community question. There's no audience. There's an audience out there. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question is from JG, who I think submitted this via uh, the, the Google form that we, that we posted. Um, and their question is, can trans-effective art be excluded from trans-cinema, even when it often feels a thousand times truer than work with textually trans characters created by people who grossly misunderstand transness? Does anybody want to jump in and, and answer that one? We have another question that's related to that we could move on to, too. I can jump in. Okay. Okay, so um, they mentioned... Um, trans-affected art being different from um, art that was about trans people made by cisgender directors? That's what the question was asking? Yeah, it, I think um, they're saying they use the term trans-affective art, which I don't fully know what they meant, but I took it to mean that art that maybe captures the experience of transness without necessarily having characters that are trans. And I think they are drawing a distinction between those works and films often made by cisgender people that have trans characters, but don't feel true to the trans experience. I think, I think the question is, do you like Evita Battle Angel? Yes or no? I think that is the question <laughs> that we're being asked here. Um, I'm going to out myself as a huge uh, anime fan here because I love Evita Battle Angel. Um, so to answer that question, I think that when you're dealing with cisgender directors tackling a transgender subject head on, you often get these really disgusted, hateful representations of transness because there's a lot of uh, internalized shame about, particularly for men, about the shame of the idea that they could also be trans women. So you get instances like the crying game where the character throws up after sleeping with uh, a trans femme person, or you get the Silence of the Lambs. And I like both of those films to some degree, but I have to compromise a lot of my own questions of like what I want out of transness. When watching those movies, I have to gravitate to other things in the film. But as far as trans-affected art goes, I think that cisgender directors, cisgender directors sometimes incidentally tap into something that's very real for trans viewers, but that's a question of subjective taste. I personally really like the, the genre of body horror because it feels like, it feels analogous to gender dysphoria for me. Like when I was watching movies as a teenager and I was experiencing this puberty that I didn't want to experience, um, the films that made the most sense to me were by David Cronenberg, where these characters were experiencing a violation of the body. Now, I think that that 
in the perception of like forming an idea of like who you are as a viewer and how that that subjectivity can play in it has a lot more of an effective power than it would be watching a cisgender director from that time period tackle the subject of transness head on. I should uh, I should just mention here that um, Willow wrote a really great essay on uh, we're all going to the World's Fair where I feel like you kind of got to that, uh, even though, of course, that's actually made by a trans filmmaker, but yeah. you got to the that aspect of like the character is not explicitly or, you know, textually trans. But I should note that the director of that film, um, uh, Jane Schoenbrunn, like they specified in the uh, Sundance notes for the film that it actually was about gender dysphoria to some extent that it was something that they were working through in making the film and they wanted it to be there without it being like this totally ever-present thing. They wanted it to be subtle and something that maybe trans people would recognize, but maybe not cisgender people. I think that leads kind of interestingly into the next uh, question here, which is from an anonymous questioner. Uh, Willow, you've written a lot about trans viewers finding trans stories where cis audiences might not see them, e.g. under the skin. Uh, do the filmmakers on the panel have any interest in creating more covert narratives that may not even have explicitly trans characters, but that nonetheless speak to the feelings and conditions of transness? So this kind of addresses more or less what you were just getting at. But um, and I think this questioner was uh, directing this question to the uh, to the two filmmakers on the panel. I don't think I would conceptualize it in that way. Um, I don't know where my career will go. Um, I you know, for now, I mean, there's always the labor issue for me. So I think like, I think something that gets left aside in a lot of these discussions of trans representation is like trans labor, um, like trans, like hiring people. I think like, I don't really care about representation so much as I care. I mean, I do, of course, care about it. But I think what gets tossed aside is the question of hiring. So I think to some degree, I'm going to keep making films with um, transgender leads and transgender crew members, um, because I can and I should and they deserve to be hired and and that is something that I can do and contribute. Uh, I'm certainly interested in making other other kinds of films as well, but I think for me the labor question is always a part of it. Um, and then I think speaking to the last question and then also this question as well, I, I you know, film is for any viewer uh, and especially for for a filmmaker like an affective history there's a series of tools that that filmmakers across the last century of cinematic art have crafted that are that are that are ours to use and and steal and rework um and you know i'm always going to be stealing in some degree from the cisgender canon um because that is what exists and so there is something very interesting about you go in and you pull out these affects um and and you you work them through your own films and maybe you're consciously trying to I guess, like emulate what it like a David Cronenberg body horror thing, um, or maybe you know you're interested in these sorts of melodramas and the sorts of like the ways in which these heightened um, gender roles come out to play in, in melodrama. And there's something interesting that you have a specific way of working out um, cinematically. So I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to give a firm answer to that question. I just think, um, you know, like what I'm always going to be doing is like you know, pilfering in, in the rummage of, of history and pulling out what I've decided is now mine, you know, laying claim to it. I think that's what's kind of exciting is saying this is mine too. Um, and this is all of ours. This is this is for the viewers as well, for transgender viewers um, who might not have been welcomed in in, in such a way. Yeah, in terms of the question about whether I have 
interest in creating more covert, covert narratives uh, that, that may not have explicitly trans characters, but nonetheless speak to the feelings and conditions being trans. I guess like what I would ask myself is, you know, now that I have transitioned, what then, you know, becomes the most fundamental or basic element of the trans experience? Is it gender dysphoria? Um, like for me, when I was making Senorita, and I think that was, you know, a very interesting period for me because that was when I was actually working through questions of gender identity and whether I was trans. And yes, you know, it's, Senorita has a trans character, but this is not a character who is still at the starting point, you know, of questioning herself and whether she was trans, like her transition is well behind her, but what defines the character is a kind of psychological bifurcation, you know, a polarity. Um, it wasn't whether she was, you know, a man or a woman, it was the contrast uh, that I was investigating or exploring was kind of a Madonna slash whore um, polarity. And I'm not sure whether that was because I was trans, whether I was, you know, whether it's because I'm a Pisces or whether it's just me, you know? Uh, and I feel like I've talked about this a few times throughout my films. What I've noticed is kind of the latent or subconscious subliminal theme that really emerges whenever I start writing a new script is that I tend to make movies movies about women who have secrets or are trying to navigate to, you know, typically clashing in opposite worlds. Like in, in Senorita, it's the country or the small town that represents goodness, so to speak, versus the big city and sin and vice and so for me to create kind of a covert narrative about transness now, I feel like I'm at the point in my life where that question in me is resolved and it doesn't occupy as much, you know, kind of my subconscious motivations manifesting themselves in the stories that I want to make. And also it's the fact that aside from being trans, I'm also an immigrant. I'm a woman of color. And it's kind of hard to like pick and choose like which part of me or aspect of me is influencing this particular creative choice or decision in my film. But I think for me, whatever film I choose to make, um, as long as I have a certain degree of control and agency in, in telling it, is that it's ultimately a film by a trans filmmaker, whether I do maybe a studio production that's you know, a science fiction adaptation or, or a very genre film, like horror or romantic drama. Yeah, I have to say this uh, leads really well into another question that, uh, that we wanted to pose. Um, you know, when we say, when we put a label, you know, whether we call something trans cinema or any other identitarian label for cinema, it always is kind of tricky to then also think of like people tend to then not think of it intersectionally, you know, and I know that uh, Jessica and Isabel, both of your films, there, 
you know, about transness, but also about race and class um, and, you know, kind of other aspects of social life. Uh, I know that, Caden, you often write about labor and class, uh, you know, and you're kind of looking at things from that intersectional lens as well. So I am curious, like, how do all of you approach the trans film image, uh, to borrow Caden's uh, words, uh, in that intersectional way? I mean, what does, does talking about things as trans images or trans cinema, does that complicate that? Does that make it harder? Like you said, Isabel, does that feel like picking and choosing in a way that's reductive? From a critical standpoint, um, and also someone who works in uh, archives and research, sort of looking at trans history and how it has sort of been told through sort of mainstream depictions has often sort of centered uh, wealthy white women, women who have transitioned. And it's sort of, you sort of see how other sort of minority groups within the sort of larger trans context sort of fall by the wayside and they sort of risk not being sort of rehabilitated and reconsidered and for their work and their importance in the community at large. So I look at that from a critical standpoint, and I do think that probably does have some implications on this sort of trans film images that I've watched. Um, I think of uh, Frank Simon's The Queen, for example, uh, that basically covers mostly predominantly white ballroom pageant of drag queens, but also people who did later on transition and live as trans women. And a major uh, point in that movie and point of contention is when uh, Crystal Abasia basically calls out the fact that she felt like she was placed low because she is a woman of a trans woman of color. And she goes on a rant. And later on, uh, Crystal Labasia becomes a major figure in the ballroom scene that basically <clears throat> is the sort of foundation of Paris's burning. You sort of see that historical lineage right there and sort of see how uh, trans people of color have often sort of felt in, in society at large, but also within queer communities that often did focus more on whiteness. Yeah, um, I can say, you know, like having made Lingo Franca and I also very recently watched a series about trans women of color. Um, I only saw a few episodes, but I felt like some of that dialogue felt like talking points from, a, you know, FAQ about that were essentially invasive questions, nosy questions that cisgender people would ask trans women. But with Lingua Franca, I was making it from a subjectivity and perspective that was just myself. Um, I wasn't trying to like do a transgender for dummies or transgender 101 for cis people. I, I consider that all of, all of that a given. And I was simply telling a story about this woman and her you know, intersectional identities. Like Lingua Franca starts out with her just going through her daily rituals, um, looking after this elderly lady in, you know, in Brighton Beach. We don't hear about her, you know, being trans every five or 10 minutes or so. And I think there is a certain purity um, and honesty about that, in that 
I wasn't trying to get a cisgender audience to like begging for their understanding and um, empathy. I told the story that I want to tell in my own terms and I expected them to meet me halfway and put in the effort intellectually um, and emotionally to empathize with someone like Olivia. And until I think trans filmmakers, especially trans filmmakers of color, um, just have the audacity to not feel the need to spoon feed or over explain everything to a white, you know, cisgender audience and tell them, you know what, this is the kind of story I want to tell, you know, and you're going to have to just really put in the effort, you know, to both uh, grasp and appreciate the content, you know, the, the form and the perspective and subjectivity that I'm coming from as an artist. Yeah, going off of that, I think there's a certain there's a certain tendency to look towards minority filmmakers and perhaps above all trans filmmakers and perhaps above all trans filmmakers of color that, um, you know, we are expected to provide a thesis to an audience to reassure them, like, you've watched this, I have an answer for you. Somehow this film will tell you how to behave in your daily life if you want to, like, support trans people. And I think that's a, that's a very a weird idea to ask of cinema. Um, cinema is doing something else. And, you know, what I, what I love about Isabel's films and about the films that I'm see, seeing now is that we're able to move past this question of like, you know, are we real or not? And I was thinking about what Isabel was saying about saying her film is a film that comes after transition. And, you know, she has these incredibly beautiful moments of a woman being in her body um, and, and these things. And this is a very personal, internal thing in, in Isabel's films that strike me so deeply. And it comes very much out of where Isabel is coming from. Um, and this is this is not a treatise to an audience. This is an expression of something that we are so lucky as an audience to be able to share in. Um, and I think that's the great gift that that Isabel's cinema gives to us. So thank you for that gift, Isabel. Thanks, Jesse. And also, I just wanted to add, you know, just very quickly that especially for minority and trans filmmakers, we are expected to tell stories from a perspective of victimization and marginalization. And that wasn't where I was coming from when I was telling Lingua Franca. This is a woman who, even though she's marginalized in, a, in certain ways, you know, still innately feels she has the agency or has, um, has the potential, potentiality to, you know, achieving that agency and she does in her own personal way, um, although it's not, you know, politically in the bigger context, she comes to her own personal agency at the end of the film. I know we've talked a little bit about this already, but another question we had here is about uh, reclaiming older films as trans. And Willow, maybe we want to turn this to you. And the question is from an anonymous asker. And it is, which films stand out to each of you from before a time when we had many working trans filmmakers as depicting the trans experience, perhaps by accident? We've already kind of touched on this quite a bit, but I think uh, they're asking for some more specific shout outs, maybe. Another submitter, Francisco Vidal, also asked the same question with the and said, like, is there a film 
made between like 1900 and 1980s or so, which is 80 years. But yeah, I, I guess are there certain films and I kind of want to add something to that. Like, are there films that you saw growing up that were not specifically, you know, films by, you know, uh, trans filmmakers or about transness, but that like spoke to you, you know? I think we're actually going to share one in common, Isabel. Um, like, uh, I, I only watched it recently, but Clute um, is a big one for me. Um, and I think that its relevance as a trans film uh, has to do with the subjectivity of Jane Fonda's character. Uh, we know everything about her. And because uh, she does sex work and a lot of trans women do sex work, that there's a kind of like kinship there between the two that's easily understood. She has these monologues about um, the work that she does in that field. And she also spends a lot of the movie talking a bit about body dysmorphia. Uh, she says at one point that she wishes she was faceless and bodiless. And you know, that's an easy thing for a trans person to hear and say, yeah, I felt that before too. And so you get a lot of this. And in the middle of that film, there's one scene with uh, Jane Fonda's character, uh, Brie, in a in a nightclub, and she spots Candy Darling on the floor. And, you know, every trans woman, every trans person knows who Candy Darling is, and they share this warm embrace with each other, where you just kind of have this informed friendship between the two. Like, they didn't have a space for Candy Darling in the film, but you can see between the two actors that they were friends with one another in the context of this movie. So it's a nice little moment of reaching across the aisle and saying to trans people, I think maybe incidentally, probably incidentally, that, you know, this is a movie for you. And beyond that, when I was a teenager, you know, it was it was all horror movies for me because, you know, um, puberty was the context I was living in back then. So, you know, Val Luton's movies uh, like Cat People, where the central character is is a woman who has something different about her that separates her from living a normalized like kind of womanhood that makes her feel separate and almost monstrous is significant in some ways to forming a kind of um, subjective taste around transness. There are a lot of examples like that rattling around in like how you can find your own self in cinema when there's nothing there. Because that's the important thing to realize when I'm talking about something like this is 20 some odd years ago, like growing up, if you were looking for a movie about yourself, if you knew you were trans, there just wasn't a whole lot there. So you kind of had to make a quilt out of your own interests in cinema and what maybe spoke to you, which is why you'll hear trans people talk about trans movies and they'll call everything under the sun trans. This makes it difficult to kind of wrap around an idea of what a transgender image in movies might look like because it's seemingly everything. But the truth of the matter is that because there was nothing there, every single trans person's experience with movies is hyper-specific and just truly subjective to whatever the trans person saw and thought like, well, maybe this image or this character can save me. You know, that's basically how I formed my relationship with cinema. Yeah, it's interesting because also, you know, really you mentioned about Kate, Candy, but I actually, I mean, I didn't even register that she was in it. But when I watched the film, that was in 2008, so 13 years ago now, I think what struck me the most about uh, Clute and 
Jane Fonda, especially Brie Daniels, her character there was how seemingly both modern that character was for you know a female character written 1971, you know, just three years prior, there was um, Sweet Charity starring um, Shirley MacLaine and by Bob Fosse that felt like, you know, a very classic Hollywood uh, depiction of a woman, but they essentially have the same profession. And here, like watching Jane Fonda play um, this sex worker, with so much depth and complexity and ambivalence to her, it immediately made me think of uh, how trans women were portrayed in Philippine cinema and, and pop culture and how very flat and one-dimensional and caricaturish that portrayal was. I mean, not nothing to do with whether they were sex workers, but like just seeing Brie Daniels there gave me both, I think, as a filmmaker um, and as uh, an aspiring actor, kind of a blueprint and a roadmap of the possibility of the kind of character I can play, you know, if I was a woman. And also that really pushed me actually to transition somehow or to really deeply investigate and ask myself the question of whether I was trans. As to how that process took place, um, or I can't really describe, you know, detail by detail, but it's some, it was a very visceral emotional reaction for me in that it just subconsciously appealed to me and it kind of really fueled the creative process that that brought about uh, Senorita um, as inspired by Clute. But that also makes me think of, like, for example, a, a film like Clute that appeals to two different, you know, trans individuals from very different backgrounds, for instance, um, and how fascinating it is. And that is, is that what makes those films, even though they're explicitly not trans and not made by trans filmmakers and creatives, is that what gives them that trans characteristic or quality? Um, as long as like there's enough of a critical mass of transgender individuals that identify that film for a variety of reasons, you know, personal reasons as something that resonates um, with them and that they can connect to psychologically and emotionally. Um, and what that you know, core attribute or element is that would identify that something you know, in that film or work of art as trans. Um, because Jane Fonda's character clearly does not have gender dysphoria. So what include, now I'm asking myself, what include makes it trans? I just watched Clute last week because of you all. So I have the experience of watching Clute at a very different stage in my life. So now I have too have, have watched Clute. But I see, I don't think that I would relate to it in the way that either of you two have. I, I liked Clute. It's good. It's a good movie. Um, but for me, I think 
you know, let's say had I watched it pre-transition, I, you know, my, my fascination um, pre-transition was with these, was with these feminist cinemas. So like, you know, Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames, like that was a big touchstone for me um, and seeing the way that those, the women in that film like squabble over the definition of womanhood amongst themselves. This film is not like that film, but it's also a film that's very much about, um, how a woman navigates womanhood per se. And I think this is why my own per first film is made about, it's about a more or less cisgender woman working as a, as a, as a female uh, sex worker and how she creates and modulates a, a womanhood that can be palatable for both herself and, and, and for her clients. So, you know, Clued, I think is for me a, a very different film than it, than it may be for both of you. I think I related to uh, Brie maybe in a sort of more just simple like oh to be a woman <laughs> sort of way, but may I'm also watching it at a different stage in my life. Um, but at the same time, knowing how you two had related to it and reading what you've written about this film, of course you watch it and you're like, I mean, th this would wreck me. Of course, I can see if I was to come at it from this side, this film would would shred me to pieces. Um, so then I could just tie this right back to my thesis from before, which we all get to come at these works with our little our little mind chisels and take what we need from them. But yeah. Uh, coming as a transmasculine individual, it is kind of fascinating to look back on what exactly I liked and took hold of. Like I think of Peter Pan as sort of the most obvious one because like the musical version, especially casting an assignment women like Mary Martin and I basically broke my VHS tape of the Mary Martin live tape performance of Peter Pan and I'm like well why did I do that I also did that it was very strange of that performance so I don't I don't even know what that means but I also did that I ruined my copy anyway sorry to interrupt yeah and, <laughs> uh liking the Peter Pan sort of narrative of and who knows what that also says about me about any sort of stunted masculinity there uh, but um, also just thinking about why I identified strongly with Tippi Hedren in The Birds, where just her mere existence makes people extremely suspicious because they seem to align the actual horrific events happening around them with birds and the existential threats of them with her existence. I don't know. It seems very prescient in a certain way. Um, I also think back to the fact I identified with James Dean and his sort of masculinity at a very young age, like Giant was the first movie. And I think there is something interesting as far as the masculinity in Giant and his character, Jet Rink, like he literally transforms and changes in class in a major way with a very sort of phallic symbol of striking oil and being covered in black oil. But you know, that is not enough to win the heart of Elizabeth Taylor, of course. But yeah, I think of going back to the sort of subjectivity and how personal it can feel and sort of the fact that you never really grow up with a direct representation. So you kind of call and form and create and curate your own ideas of not just film canon, but also the way you perceive the gender of yourself. Yeah. Um, can I add just one really small thing? I now I'm you know thinking about it. I think what 
you know, really struck me and resonated with me as someone who was still, who was then questioning whether I was trans watching Clute is privilege and power in that, you know, in the Philippines, uh, trans women tend to be like really at, at the bottom of the food chain in terms of having the privilege and the power and as portrayed, you know, and Brie Daniels, Jane Fonda's character include as a sex worker who was in a way still under investigation for uh, perspective, you know, murder or disappearance. She also is someone who has the least amount of power and privilege of all the characters. And her arc basically in the film is to kind of regain that agency and power. She does it um, by, you know, through her sexual power and prowess, um, the kind of lust that she, you know, elicits in her in her clients and her and her John. And for me, you know, maybe I'm getting too personal here, but I think the thing that really kept me from transitioning for a long time is the loss of status um, that I would could potentially experience um, if I had transitioned in the Philippines. I, if I had stayed in the Philippines, I don't think it would have transitioned. Um, but it's only in the in the U.S. that I felt free enough to transition because. You know, I was really, really scared and worried that if I transitioned in the Philippines, even though I was an emerging filmmaker and an artist who was gaining recognition, you know, internationally, like there would be just some random person, you know, out in the street is going to tell me like, oh, you're trans and that means you're shit, you know, and like writing that story in Senorita about this trans sex worker who's essentially a political double agent and becomes powerful over the course of the film, I think that's what I really responded to include, um, you know? So it's not just, I think her gender identity here, but her specific status and position in society um, because of her transness uh, in Senorita. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked. From new directors to award winners, beautiful, interesting, incredible movies, there's always something new to discover. I was really happy to see MUBI's double feature from experimental filmmaker Jessica Sarah Rinland. Rindland's mid-length films are informed by notions of exploration and adventure, sensorially attuned to the processes through which revelations can be excavated. And I'm excited to revisit The Salt of Tears by post-New Wave legend Philip Garel. It's a funny, surprising, often moving moral tale about a rake who juggles three relationships, but really only one, with his own ego. If you'd like to check out these films too, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash film comment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment for a whole month of great cinema for free. I think that's a good segue also to another question we have that I thought was really fascinating. This is uh, from Aster. 
Do you see a tension between a trans cinema based in visibility and representation and a trans cinema that uses aesthetics, montage, and structures that undermine mainstream categories of film like fiction, doc, experimental? And is this tension productive for trans cinema? Does it inform your filmmaking and criticism? And I think I think it's a it's a really interesting question that like maybe is even broader and applies to um, you know just the question of representation in general. Like I think what maybe this person is trying to get at is is it worth it to try to create space in the mainstream or is it more worthwhile for you to undermine? try to undermine like the structures of the mainstream. I think I can hop on this. <laughs> so I've always made films that have moved fairly freely between documentary and fiction and have this sort of like formal instability to them. But I must say, I get very tired being at film after festival after festival, where like it's trans, like it transitions between modes, just like the people transition between genders. And I'm like, well, you know, nobody transitions in any of these films. They're, you know, they're pretty much hanging out just in the gender that they're in. Um, so I do wary of like a little bit when we get too excited about like, uh, you know, the, the similarity in these two concepts and therefore like a trans cinema will like create slippages between genre and that this will free trans people. At the same time, it is very much the mode that I'm working in. And I certainly am somebody who is, I think I've expressed before, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the idea of representation being enough. I mean, I, you know, as uh, Tourmaline and others have pointed out, you know, representation is very much a trap. It is not something that will save us um, on its own. Um, but more than that, I think it, it limits the possibilities of what we can become because then we're making cinema that simply reifies the category that has been given to us, um, you know, under the current set of affairs. And, and that for me is, is very limiting and bad. Um, whether as, as to the question of like, is there space in mainstream cinema? I would hope so. Um, and I think that there's a very productive ground to be to be played with. Um, I think me and Isabel have both done this in our films in terms of like bouncing between various understandings of what it means to make a film and what it means to to uh, include a trans character on a film. I think we owe it to future generations. I owe it to future generations of trans filmmakers in order to, yeah, make uh, spaces that are fertile um, and where there are multiple ways of making films um, such that filmmakers and, and audiences that come after us uh, are allowed more ways to be and to exist, both as as film viewers, filmmakers, um, and as you know, people in whatever gender they end they end up in. And yeah, for me, representation is only interesting when it comes into play against and alongside other questions. I think, um, yeah, I was like mulling about this the other day, and I was like representation in and of itself is, is a gesture of craft. And then the art is something that comes after that. And it's very important to hone your craft uh, and your art along, alongside each other. I mean, filmmaking requires an understanding both of art and of craft. Um, so I don't know. I think we can take it all seriously at the same time. Yeah, uh, there's an unfair expectation on trans people and on any minority group, really, to kind of uh, save the genre of cinema or the type of person that they are for the type of movies or art that they're trying to make. That it can't just be a thing on its own, that it also has to be a point of trans activism and a point of deep representation. 
And, you know, th this is expected of you, even in the field of, of criticism, I'm expected to have opinions about transness all the time. Most of the jobs that I end up getting are related to transness. And uh, that's a question where labor kind of comes into it, like you mentioned earlier, Jessica. Um, I think that there's a real push and pull with criticism where like, um, yes, I do want to be the person that's asked to write about transness because I feel like I have a lot of interesting ideas about it, but I also want to do all of these other things in criticism. I want to be asked to write about action movies and experimental film and anything under the sun. I want to do every single bit of it because I know that I'm capable of it, but because I'm trans, it's expected that I always do something that involves transness. So I, I find myself constantly writing about transness and looking at these films about transness, but that isn't like the be all end all of like what I can bring to the table. And I think that that sort of, I think that that sort of lines in with uh, creators who are filmmakers too, who make something and then they're expected immediately to comment on the transness in their movie when they maybe want to do something different or the transness aspect might be subtle or they are tackling transness, but it's also about all these other things that are just as important. As far as um, using sort of techniques and aesthetics to sort of undermine or even make a sort of fun, sort of unique hybrid to sort of tell a trans story or show uh, trans images, I actually want to uh, highlight a movie made in 1992. Uh, Rosa von Pronheim isn't trans, but I would say with this movie, his subject is pretty much his co-author of the movie, which is who is uh, Charlotte von Malsdorf, who was a curator in East Germany and basically survived literally living with a Nazi and only, and also survived uh, the end of, uh, the end of uh, the Berlin Wall coming down. But in that movie, uh, which is called I Am My Own Woman, which is based on her memoir, she's very much an active participant and, and visible author sort of interacting with how to basically tell her own story in that movie, which is so unique as far as how it basically skips around between documenting document documentary nonfiction and sort of fictionalizing and dramatizing her life experiences. And I think uh, Rosa von Pronheim's other trans movies are also worth seeking out if you can. But I think that movie itself can sort of be a blueprint with how you can sort of incorporate not just aesthetics, but actual sort of people and individuals in your movie and make it sort of a collective effort as well. That's a, it's a really wonderful film. Um, yeah, and it's it, it also has, yeah, this recreation document, it's, it's fascinating. It's also really though worth reading alongside the actual, um, the actual uh, memoir that she's written because the memoir is like just about chairs. It's only about chairs. She's like, the stuff about her being trans is like, it's like in there, it's like, oh, I shot the Nazi that was like, you know, my, my dad's husband tried to kill her. And so I had to shoot, had to shoot him. And that was really hard for me. But what was great was there was this chair that I desperately wanted to collect. And so like most of this book is about her obsession with the Kondazite, uh furniture. So she's like, really, she like the bomb drops in the jail and she, she, she goes out and she's like, oh my God, furniture. It's really, it's a, it's an astonishing work too. And then you see this tension. She's writing this book, right? Because she's a 
transgender woman, but she's like, fantastic. I have this platform because I'm transgender. I can use it to advocate for this clonidine furniture. That is what I'm really all about. Uh, and you see this in the in the in the movie as well because she's still managing this museum that has the furniture in it. But the book is just like everything is like let's get out of that way so I can talk about the curves of this furniture. It's incredible and it's incredibly sensual. This furniture, oh, yeah, um, which is I think something Isabel can. Yeah, surfaces, baby. That's where it's Charlotte at. Charlotte is extremely <laughs> positive. <laughs> oh yeah, she's really yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my my thoughts about visibility and representation. It's very, very interesting to me because I feel like this emphasis and this um, focus on visibility and representation of the trans identity. Is it just me, or is it a, a distinctly American? thing. Um, like when I was uh, pitching my new feature, Tropical Gothic, you know, at Berlinale, and we were, my producer and I were meeting with, you know, producers from like France, Germany, Netherlands. And I told them the premise of the film, not once they say like, oh, is the character or the main protagonist trans, or can you incorporate, you know, a trans element into the, the the movie because you're trans, you're a trans filmmaker. Not once did I get asked that question, uh, but it's only in the U.S. where it's such a thing that if you're trans, you know, you can only, you know, legitimately or talk about or focus on what's trans about your work, um, but. My own approach to that, like in terms of subverting, you know, the aesthetics, it's I plan on working and developing a number of projects across genres, um, different tones and moods. I make, I have some trans characters in some of them, and I don't have trans characters in others. And in the material that I have trans characters, it's not about them being trans, you know. Um, it's not like a particularly um, salient or strong point in the plot. And, you know, like in Tropical Gothic, uh, which is set in the Philippines in the 16th century, we had these native healers and priestess, priests, priestesses that were called Babaylan, and they were essentially two spirit. Um, so they were kind of non-binary and that's in my tropical feature script, but not once did I, you know, kind of explain what the whole thing is. Uh, so that's just my thing. In terms of, you know, within the American context, visibility and rep representation, you know, to piggyback be, be on what Jesse said, you know, I feel like it's not just visibility and representation, representation per se, it's very basic. At this point, we have to, you know, look into and um, the nature and the quality of that visibility and representation. Are these characters written with, you know, humanity and dignity and complexity? And are, if they happen to be written and developed by trans creators, do these trans creators have creative control and autonomy? over the project that they're making. And that is what I wanted to do um, with Lingo Franca and that hopefully it becomes uh, an example or a case study for aspiring trans filmmakers that you, know, you can 
be an art, you can, there's certainly a way for you to be an artist. Um, and that is one where you have complete control and agency over the film you're making, especially if it's about the, you know, community, respective minority communities that you're trying to uh, portray and depict in your work. Um, this is also a question I've been struggling with recently, you know, so I made my, my second feature, So Pretty, is um, it's adapted from a German novel, um, and the subtitle of that novel is a utopian film, so I sort of took this utopian impulse in this novel that I was adapting, and I adapted it to this sort of like um, partially trans sort of like idyllic community that we imagine existing in Brooklyn, which is, it draws from certain documentary aspects of communities that do exist, but then it is a... a, a, a a fanciful utopian imagining of this place as though they could live outside of the strictures of, or they are trying to live outside of the strictures of capital and, and race and labor that are placed upon them when they are only, you know, every so often the, the fantasy falls apart and but there's navigation there. But as I, as I screen this film for especially younger audiences, I, I do find myself incredibly moved and to watch like how deeply these younger audiences res respond to the film, I do want to make sure that I never become too cynical and so, like, yes, what I'm making on in So Pretty is a projection of a community that doesn't exist, but is close enough that we can imagine that it might. Um, and so then I remind myself that this form of representation is something else. It's 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 something that you that you can see, especially when you're a young audience, and there's this identification with the dreamed of thing. And this, for me, is a like one way among many that we could play with this question of representation, because we do have to acknowledge and accept. The desperation that that I think all of us as transgender critics and, and and filmmakers feel for images of ourselves. I mean, I do remember how gutting it was to be a kid and to watch the Science of the Lambs. And I really remember watching that movie and being like, "Damn, being trans sucks. Never gonna do that." Uh, and that was really it for me. I had no concept of myself as trans, but I was just like, "Damn, that sucks. She's gross." Uh, and I and I left it at that. Um, and and so I must say, I'm forced to confront my own work somewhat differently when I see how um certain audiences receive it and then i wonder is this another tool that we can that we can play with this aspirational element of 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 representation how can we complicate work with uh through that and now i'm interested in making a film that's like the opposite where there are these like just the worst parts of ourselves and, and, and these fall apart um but yeah so i'm trying to take representation seriously but not as an end in and of itself because it is an incredibly powerful cinematic force. Um, so what happens when we think of representation as a cinematic force? Um, you know, there is there is power there. So we've talked a little about a little bit about visibility and representation. You guys also brought up some documentaries, and there was this one question that was specifically about recent documentaries, uh, including P.S. Burn This Letter, No Ordinary Man, and Disclosure. Jenno Caden has written about at length and has thoughts about. Do uh, you guys want to speak about, you know, those films, but also maybe on documentary? I We've been talking sort of generally, but uh, thinking about how documentaries have maybe, you know, represented or uh, approached the trans experience. This question was uh, posed by Jenny Olson, who's a filmmaker as well. Well, I do want to focus on the fact that I don't want to, like, give all these movies away because I know only at least two of them that you listed haven't really had wide distribution yet and are still kind of in the festival circuit. 
but I do want to talk about no, no Ordinary Man in the context of <clears throat> kind of using uh, nonfiction as a tool to basically recorrect the record. In this case, it was about a real-life trans man named Billy Tipton who was outed when basically he died and the EMT person basically found, uh, found that he was an assigned female at birth but he basically lived stealth most of his life and basically uh, performed as a jazz musician as Billy Tipton and lived the rest of his life as Billy Tipton as a father to children. But then uh, the sort of Jerry Springer impulse about trans people took over the narrative of talking about him and it was absolutely awful and disgusting. And I think this film does a good job sort of highlighting uh, uh, the ways in which uh, news magazines and talk shows perceived trans people at that time. And honestly, there's part of me that wishes uh, my own media profession would consider the fact that this was not that long ago and would consider the fact that there's some culpability in where they work uh, and how uh, certain uh, certain uh, places uh, talk about trans people, people, but um, the No Ordinary Man does basically uh, takes the route of correcting the record. There are times in which I do think it almost does a little too much because it does want to bring up so many ideas and sort of conceptions about trans masculinity. And I do sort of back that effort in concept, but sometimes it can go on tangents, but I think at its strongest points are basically pointing to the fact that the way in which this man's life was perceived and written about was absolutely wrong and horrendous. Um, P.S. Burn This Letter, there are, trans people within that, but it does talk about mainly the sort of LGBTQ umbrella of gay elders who basically lived life in sort of, in sort of secrecies and sort of corners, going to bars, writing letters, going to these little pockets and basically having these communities to talk to and networks to engage in that I think is important especially in terms of people who have interest in archives. And that goes back to what I wrote about the Criterion in the Criterion Collection about the transgender archive, the digital transgender archive in Boston that basically is networking all of these sort of uh, societies and letters and collections from these archives that I think is doing a service to sort of bring to light how these people live, the languages they use, what they saw, what they perceived about cult the culture around them, and often the ways in which they had to respond with how the culture responded to them as well. And as far as disclosure goes, I mean, I've sort of, I've sort of had my fun with sort of critiquing it, but I think my overall problem problem with it is I wish they talked to more elders, essentially. Um, 
there are people I know, like uh, Marriott, Pathy Allen, Dallas Denny. There are people I know who would have fit in as far as what they were telling. And I wish I would have like loved to have heard trans people of a certain age talk about their relationships to movies or their relationships to seeing uh, Olympia Dukakis in uh, Tales from Tales of the City, for example. And also I wish there were some movies that wish, and I note this in my reverse shot piece that I wish were talked about, but uh, I know that movie has meant a lot to people, but I'm just not one of them. Yeah, um, I also wrote about disclosure for hyperallergic and like Caden, I'm not really a fan of it. Um, I think the fundamental issue with disclosure is that its thesis is working off of this idea of what uh, transness is according to cisgender people. So you get a lot of these images of just everything that we already know happened over the years. So you get a lot of the Silence of the Lambs, you get the crying game, you get these sitcoms where trans women are the butt of jokes. And there's not a whole lot in there about like, well, what's the inverse of this? What do you actually like about the trans image in movies? Because there is there is a lot of uh, push and pull with audience, with transgender audience members who watch this and then think like, you know, I, I, I responded to this or that, like there's this brief moment where uh, Susan Stracker, who I love, mentions um, the power of growing up and watching Bugs Bunny and how he was like this kind of like trans femme icon. And I found that really interesting because in that way, she's kind of taking an image back and molding it for herself. And I find that really cool. Um, of the of the other documentaries mentioned, um, my favorite um, was P.S. Uh, Burn This Letter, Please, because it does deal with archiving in an interesting way, where it takes the past and then presents it on screen to show that we actually were there. So you get this full grand scope of what the, um, what the uh, queer scene looked like at the time through these letters that um, queer people actually wrote at the time. It's heavily focused on drag queens, but there's trans women and gay men there as well. And you get all of this archive footage attached to letters so you can get a very good idea of uh, what is actually going on at the time. And you get a picture of history that is really cool. Um, but uh, my main issue with a lot of the recent documentary fads about transness is the form is just kind of boring. And this is a problem that I have with a lot of documentaries in general where they don't do enough to kind of shake things up. Like they'll say, so-and-so happened and then there's a talking head. And then there's another talking head and another talking head and another talking head. And it just gets monotonous to look at visually. And I think that the best transgender documentaries or documentaries that cover transness in some way or another kind of play with the form a little bit. Like I'm sure that we all are familiar with Paris is Burning. Like that's kind of like the backbone for what transgender documentaries look like. But there's also this really cool documentary from Canada that came out about 10 years earlier focused on trans sex workers called Hookers on Davy that has an on the ground approach to it. And it's, it's an incredible film and it's kind of slipped through the cracks of history uh, for one reason or another. But there are ways to do documentaries about transness, I think, that are formally interesting and also use documentary technique. But that isn't always the case with these documentaries. And I think particularly with, with disclosure, that's its guiltiest sin, really. And 
sorry to sort of double dip into this, but um, as far as other sort of documentaries, um, you know, a lot of the earliest sort of images of actual trans people were these kind of janky, very earnest seeming medical documentaries or industrial films about people who were just starting transition. And you kind of think about the fact that uh, Doris Wishman even got her foot into it uh, as far as uh, doing Let Me Die a Woman. And you kind of do have a lot of issues with that, obviously, with like even that movie has like, that movie has a sort of B-horror movie music in it when, when people are talking about going uh, to get sexual assignment surgery, gender confirmation surgery. But um, as far as now, I definitely do agree there is sort of a monotony in sort of, in sort of having talking heads and also a lot of times this sort of earnestness and wanting to tell everything, but sometimes losing the plots at certain points. And you hope that people can focus on certain aspects of a trans story and try to negotiate the overall trans stories because there are so many amazing trans stories that I would want to see told, whether in a, a dramatization or a documentary uh, format that haven't yet been told, but I would like to see a little more sort of formal innovation going on there as well. I think this is going to be our last question, and then we'll kind of have a little bit of a... Uh open forum, I guess. This is a question from Owen. Sometimes I worry that the ways I want to explore or depict my trans identity through film will give cis audiences the wrong idea of, quote, what it means to be trans, end quote, or worse yet, make other trans people uncomfortable. I worry about this because some of my ideas can make me uncomfortable myself. How should trans filmmakers navigate the depictions of trans experiences that might not seem palatable and what those depictions might mean to different people? I think we have absolutely no rep responsibility to represent ourselves well in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and I find the this expectation placed upon us to be vile and transphobic, whether it comes from cis viewers or uh, transgender viewers. I understand where the impulse comes from. But when we are telling a transgender individual to shut the fuck up uh, because we think that somehow this will cause our rights to be taken away, no, our rights are being taken away by... Uh, uh, conservative reactionary forces in this country that are going to do just fine regardless of what we say. Uh, nothing I can say will set us back except shutting up. Um, and so I think it's very important that our art, I yearn for like more terrible, offensive, bad trans art. I would so much rather that than, than the alternative. Um, yeah, go off kid. Um, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll connect with someone, but yeah, I just, I've been mulling this over, and I think we have absolutely no responsibility to represent ourselves well. <laughs> None. <laughs> and that the fullness of ourselves includes things that are ugly um, and things that are not perfect. And, and if we are to exist as full cinematic subjects, then our perversions and our, mis and our failures and our wrongdoings are just as much of our part of our cinematic image as anything else. Um, and yeah, it makes my skin crawl when I think about how that is placed on me by viewers, critics, and, and audiences. I think it's very sad. I'm, I'm in complete agreement. Like, just do what you need to do and say what you need to say. And, and, you know, I understand the impulse to worry about that sort of thing because 
we have this history of, uh, you know, being crucified for who we are, but like that's going to happen regardless. If you look at what's happening in the United States right now, they're trying to take the rights away from transgender kids left and right. They're trying to legislate them out of existence. And, you know, that's all that's been on my mind this week. I haven't been thinking about cinema at all. But like, you know, you're, you need to do what you need to do in art because, um, you know, it, it, it'll be dishonest otherwise. Like uh, Tori Peter's novel, Detransition Baby, just came out and it literally starts with a trans woman contemplating the idea of contracting AIDS being like symbolic of getting pregnant. So like, go for it. Yeah, I was gonna tell Owen if he hasn't read Detransition Baby already to read Transition Baby to get an idea of if that book can be a major hit in the community, you have nothing to worry about. And yeah, even for me, like I did not make Lingua Franca to represent, you know, trans people. I've, I've said before that, you know, I don't think the tra this trans aesthetic or trans sensibility is monolithic or homogeneous, like, because at the end of the day, we're all individuals with our respective backgrounds and histories and, you know, identities, like the inter intersectionality also comes into play here. And I feel like as long as we're making art from a place of complete autonomy, I, I keep talking about agency and autonomy and creative control because, yeah, I think that's what's most important is that if we are to kind of you know, produce art, enough art, you know, as a community of trans filmmakers and have those, you know, films be about subjects and styles that are, you know, just diverse and eclectic. And from there, we can start to, you know, pick out, if we must, certain attributes or characteristics that one, you know, through all of them that are that are common, then that's how we define it. Because when I think about it, like to be perfectly honest, having transitioned, um, I don't deal with questions of gender dysphoria on a day-to-day -day basis. I certainly didn't feel that while making Lingua Franca. And I might even go as far as to say, like it's really Senorita that feels to me to really be more about um, transness than anything I've made after I transitioned. I made Lingua Franca, you know, just from a place of complete honesty and authenticity. And because it said the resulting film has a voice and sensibility that seems idiosyncratic or different from what's being done out there, then it automatically becomes like, oh, this is a trans film because this is different from what it's, you know, what we're used to that are being made by cisgender filmmakers about trans people. But I think like, it's just my film, you know, it's my distinct um, and unique sensibility I'd like to think. Um, so I, psychologically, I think what makes a film trans is when, it is made by a filmmaker, an artist, who while in the process of creating that film 
is very much preoccupied, you know, by these questions of gender identity, um, of gender dysmorphia. If uh, this, um, yeah, if you have to be dysphoria, sorry, if you have to be very specific about that, like Lingua Franca is, I think, the work of an emancipated person, so to speak, and that I wasn't, you know, necessarily trying to score political points by making a film that's about a Filipina trans woman immigrant was undocumented. I just wanted to make a film that as a cinephile would satisfy me intellectually and aesthetically. Like this is a film I wanted to make. Like I didn't want to make a film that everyone would get. You know, I wanted a, a film that a cinephile and fellow cinephiles would appreciate. And that Lingua Franca was the result of that creative process. I mean, I think cinematic artists have a moral and a political responsibility, but I think uh, the idea that we tie that into a question of representation, like it'll look bad on trans people, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, we have a responsibility as as artists and and um, and there's many ways to work these things through through an art. There's not a monolithic way to to route these things through our art, um, nor is like necessarily searching for the right answer. The, the goal. Um, so I don't know. I think, yeah, again, it's, it's, it is this question of what does an emancipated cinema for, for, for transgender individuals look like? What does cinema look like after, after the question, that question? Um, you know, what does it look like when we can exist in our bodies? Could I ask one question to just add to the panel? Uh, a lot of these questions have rooted in some way in um, gender dysphoria, but I wanted to ask everyone on the panel if there was a moment in a movie or a movie itself that gave you gender euphoria, because we focus a lot on the negative aspects of transness a lot of the time. But when I'm watching movies, sometimes I'll watch something and see myself and I'm just like, that's that's it you know like I had that when I was watching Isabel's film Lingua Franca in her great sex scene when uh you know it, it's great and then in the past I've had that with the uh dress up aspect of Celine and Julie go boating where they're like trying on all this theatricality of, of femininity and the playfulness of it all like we talk a lot about gender dysphoria but I think a lot of the fun in transness comes with like piecing together your own identity here and there and not all of it is negative like I like I want to know from all of you like what what makes you happy about being trans when watching movies that's a really nice question. Yeah, and I think this, I think it's also just important to underline that the question of gender dysphoria is, is I mean, that's a diagnostic tool uh, written by cis doctors. I don't think that that is the basis of a way of being in life. I Gender dysphoria is that, you know, in my own personal gender, gen, gender journey, I don't think gender dysphoria was not a crux um, of how I ended up the way I did. But so... I mean, I said it earlier, it was realizing for me watching these um these these classic these classic melodramas and, and women's pictures um and and in watching uh, feminist and lesbian history is realizing, you know, this moment where I could watch this film and 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 instead of watching it with a confused um relationship to these images to say, I am a part of this history. And that for me was this incredible moment when I realized like this flow of images I was now contributing to as a, as a filmmaker and as a, as a film viewer and to realize that I finally had a place in a lineage of, of women um, 
was an incredible, an incredible moment. And so these are the films that I, that I seek out. Um, yeah. So that's always been nice for me. Yeah. I think for me, you know, in terms of gender euphoria, that's what I wanted to, because I haven't really seen that specifically, you know, when it comes to trans characters, at least from the films that I've seen, your narrative features, I wanted to create and depict my own moments of gender euphoria, like you said, Willow and Lingua Franca. Um, and I think the main difference, for instance, between you know, sensuality, sexuality, the expression of sexual desire in Senorita, which I did pre-transition, and in Lingua Franca, um, is that you know, sex in Senorita is there seems to be an attitude of I you know, stigma, social stigma and judgment and cynicism. And I think it's because I was working through those questions of gender dysphoria about myself. But in Lingua Franca, you know, those central scenes are just about my character being horny, you know, and enjoying being fucking horny and not caring about, you know, what other people think. Like this sex scene in Lingua Franca is not a a succession of shots of naked bodies and body parts gyrating against each other. It's just my face for like two minutes experiencing, you know, sensual pleasure and kind of the whole gamut of emotions and thoughts that she's going through that even though she is enjoying, you know, like she is existing in her body and enjoying her sexual pleasure, she's also realizing within that time that she is a body within a specific sociopolitical milieu and setting that, you know, can be quite threatening and oppressive uh, as represented by this cisgender um, white man that she's becoming sexually intimate with. But that doesn't stop her ultimately from, you know, um, enjoying herself and achieving climax. Uh, as far as gender euphoria, um, like there was a weird period where I watched nothing but Westerns during the start of my transition. I don't know, as far as embracing blindly, po possibly uh, traditional masculinity, um, but to pick a film, probably Philip Kaufman's The Wanderers, where they all start to sing in a group, uh, the Dion song, uh, Wanderer, and I find that great. And also um, the late great uh, Linda Mance is in it as a total tomboy. And I always enjoy sort of seeing the sort of lone sort of tomboy who is almost non-binary in a sense, or possibly trans-masculine, like uh, anybody's in West Side Story is probably a good example of that too. Uh, but yeah, the, the when they all sing a bunch of sweet boys who also are in Greaser and Leather Jackets and in Dion. I am a mark for that. Willow, did you have uh, a moment? I guess you already, you, you cited some, but. Yeah, uh, I love Celine and Julie go boating, but um, I also love Desperately Seeking Susan. Like I, I love this, this uh, idolization that this character, uh, Rosanna Arquette, like, like she's idolizing Madonna. And I know for a fact that if I had been like a teenage girl in the 80s, 
I would have been decked out in just complete Madonna outfits. Just, I, I love that. Like, I like, I know that there's some spiritual part of me that was a mall girl in the eighties dressed like Madonna. So like I watched that movie and I tap into that kind of vein of myself that like, like I kind of just, I, I feel it in my body. And I get that occasionally with movies that are kind of about like treating uh, femininity and womanhood as a kind of dress up. And cause like, I did that a lot growing up. Like I knew I was trans from a young age. So, but like, I grew up in the American South. So it wasn't like something I could do like very loudly. But whenever I had to the house to myself, I would like try on my mom's clothes or her shoes. And, you know, all these movies that are kind of about playfully figuring yourself out by idolizing this other person uh, feel close to me because I did have that relationship to my myself when I was a child. So movies like Desperate Like Seeking Susan and Celine and Julie Go Voting like really strike a chord for me and how I've kind of figured out my own womanhood. Well, I think now that is a good note to end on, Euphoria. So thank you, Willow. That was a really great question. Uh, I do want to like give you all a chance, I don't know, to chime in. We covered a lot of ground uh, I, I will say there are still questions we didn't get through. So we're, we're just going to have to do this another time because there's uh, people want to ask you guys a lot of questions. But uh, before we close out, is there, I don't know, anything we didn't cover that you wanted to say or like just an observation about the world or something you watched recently or anything at all? Final words. Jane, uh, Sean, Brian, uh, we're all going to the world so it was great. And uh, they have been a great supporter of body talk that me and Willow do sometimes. Uh, but so that was really special to sort of see us cited in a director's statement. And that movie is absolutely worth seeking out as part of sort of a generation that made a lot of perhaps at times ill-advised cursory searches to find our sort of identities on the internet so I think that's a great film and I think it's in the new director's new film series okay great yeah it's worth it to check out yeah I saw it at Sundance and it was one of my favorite things I saw there so I second that recommendation thank you again all of you for making time for this and you know for all your very insightful observations this was really fun I'm, I'm so glad that we got to involve the community in this. Um, and I hope we'll have you all again, uh, you know, to talk about, you know, other things and, and to dig into more movies. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Uh, do, do any of you want to see my cat? He's like right beside me. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Mubi and made possible by our subscribers and by the members and patrons of Film at Lincoln Center. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.